trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I welcome you on behalf of me and my sinuses. I don't know what is in the air these days. Well, I do, actually. It's smoke and particulates and a lot of stuff that's uh, making me sneeze my fool head off. But nonetheless, I'm glad you're with me today. Yep, the battle for your mind, it's a real thing. And I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I am here to invite you to think more clearly and independently about the world around us. So whether you're a first-time wrong thinker or a seasoned veteran of the battle for your mind, I encourage you to pull up a chair, come and find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers. But most importantly, I invite you to claim your heritage as a free individual. By the way, our show is brought to you by great sponsors each week, like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I've been thoughtful enough to uh, put a link in my show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com, that'll connect you to each one of these sponsors. So I was having a conversation with a friend last night, and this is a guy who I trust. This is a, I've been friends with him for a very long time. I have seen him through good times and bad times, and he's one of those individuals. I, I, hope, you all, I hope we all have friends like this. There's a certain steadiness about this, this friend that uh, that gives me strength, all right? So I feel reassured. If I'm, I'm talking to my friend, I feel like, you know, I feel like uh, I'm, I'm not alone here. There There is some sanity in the world in spite of uh, everything that seems to point to the contrary, you know, that we're, we're kind of losing our collective minds. But in the course of our conversation, my friend told me about how he had unplugged from the media. And I mean really, like abstains from all media, mass media, social media. Um, being informed is something that, uh, that a lot of us tell ourselves. You know, that's the justification for why I got to get online. First thing when I wake up in the morning, what am I doing? Well, I'm checking my news feed. I got to see, is there anything I need to know about? Now, if you're feeling a little bit sheepish, I, I don't want you to feel like you're being singled out here. I do it too. In fact, I, I sometimes question, is this habit or is this addiction? Or is there, is there a difference? I don't know. But I'm drawn like a moth to the flame. You know, I've got to know. I've got to know. Tell me what's happening. Otherwise, I might feel like I'm missing out somewhere. After talking to my friend, who for months now has abstained from most media, and I mean almost all of it, he was saying that it has totally changed his life for the better. Now, I can hear, you know, the sophisticated among us, you know, well, sure, if you want to walk around in a perpetual cloud of ignorance and not knowing what's going on. But I would submit to you that uh, in talking with my friend, I, I sensed a peace about him and just a, an assurance in his voice that whatever's going on in the world, and, you know, he's got his challenges too, just like everybody else, He's not intentionally burdening himself by trying to remain informed 
by the narrative managers of the chattering class. And I think he's on to something. And, and I understand there's a certain amount of irony in that, uh, well, now, Brian, you're speaking to me on a, you know, a mass media, you know, a platform here. You're trying to reach as many people as possible. True, true. But I'm also trying to reach people for whom truth is more than just a, you know, a hobby. Yeah, we bump into it once in a while, but, you know, it's really no big deal. I could take it or leave it. Because I, I believe I'm speaking to people for whom truth is uh, <clears throat> its a central tenet of their life. It's a foundational part of who they are. They want to remain rooted in reality. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say a lot of what's going on around us today is is deliberately disconnected from reality. Oh, wait till you hear what I've got to tell you about um you know, you think that uh, you think abortion couldn't become more controversial, right? Especially in light of the new Texas law that would outlaw most abortions once a fetal heartbeat can be detected. Well, guess what? <laughs> now there's uh, there are certain advocacy groups stepping forward, and now they're claiming that abortion isn't just for women anymore. Yeah, we went intersectional on an already controversial topic, so it's it just gets crazier. And if you're serious about maintaining your reality and maintaining your sanity in the midst of all this, well, first of all, you got your work cut out for you. But I think it's also time to really consider what brings value into your life. And I'm saying this with the full knowledge that, you know, I may not be one of those things that brings value into your life or at least brings things that, uh, that uplift you. Now, I try to. And I appreciate those of you who will give me feedback. If you, if you tell me, Brian, it's been a little heavy lately. I do take that to heart. And it's not because I'm looking for excuses, you know, to not talk about anything controversial. I'm okay with that. But what I don't want to do is weigh you down with, with fears or with, with anger or with the sense of, oh, my gosh, this is so much worse than we thought it was. I'm trying to show the world as it is but at the same time, encourage you to consider how it could be and how you and I can can have some serious influence on making the world, you know, connecting that what the world is with what it could be. That's what leadership is all about. And it's going to be different for each one of us. And no, we're not going to fix all the problems. This is a fallen world. It's going to stay that way. Well, until Jesus comes back. That's just the way that it is. But... You're not as helpless as you think. And I wanted to start off by talking about why we don't trust the media and why we're right not to trust the media. This was published on LewRockwell.com. It's originally from uh, the uh, Boyd Cathy <clears throat> Review. I think that's what it's called. Boyd Cathy Review of Books at blogs.blogspot.com. And Boyd Cathy says, sometimes in the midst of all the assaults on our Western, our historic Western civilization, the best approach, the most effective counter arguments utilize humor, mordant wit that can make significant points and sometimes attract more interest in readers than a serious documented report. I think uh, if I could just uh, throw this in as an aside, uh, is it J.P. Sears, the long haired uh, YouTube sensation, his parody is I know for some people, they think, oh, this is pretty juvenile. That guy can say more truth in the course of 
poking fun at some of the different foibles of, of what is going on right now culturally than anybody I know. And, and I think he deserves to be a, a YouTube sensation. But he has to couch it in humor. So Boyd Cathy's point is taken. But he says, unfortunately, in our day and time, far too many of our fellow citizens either don't have time to spend reading such epistles. Often they confront such detailed information with a yawn, counting the minutes to the latest episode of America's Got Talent or The Bachelorette, or anticipating more social posturing on Facebook or Twitter, which increasingly dominate our lives to the exclusion of all else. Now, Boyd Cathy says, well, many of our parents and we grew up, even in the most rural schools, reading a smattering of Shakespeare. He says, I had to read Macbeth and Julius Caesar in high school or memorizing a famous poem or two. He says, I can recall learning by heart Milton's On His Blindness and Edgar Allan Poe's Annabelle Lee again in high school or on being able to write a correct sentence and learning at least the outlines of American history. While they and we were exposed to such education today, it seems much of that has gone by the wayside. But he points out how on National Public Radio, back on September 4th, on one of its woke quiz shows, I think it was, wait, wait, don't tell me, a youthful, supposedly educated celebrity contestant was asked to name the famous plantation where George Washington lived on the Potomac River. You know, he's talking about Mount Vernon, right? You could hear the contestant's consternation and perplexity. It was as if she had somehow stepped into a black hole in a galaxy light years away. Now, obviously, her history courses, such as they were, didn't mention that. Answers to all the questions about trendy rock groups? Yeah, that's a sure thing. But a real knowledge of American history? Yet. In fact, the accusation is that such knowledge is actually a sure sign of racism. That is, historic white supremacy, whose hegemony stains and marks irredeemably our, our every aspect, every facet of our history, our culture, our language, our very existence. Isn't that fascinating? I saw this too, by the way, when uh, they were taking down the statue of Robert E. Lee in uh, Richmond, Virginia, earlier this week. And I I posted the opinion on Twitter. It was like, hey, you know, he really was a great man. You would know that if you read anything that the guy wrote, his letters to his sons and his personal observations. Yeah, he may have been on the wrong side, but Robert E. Lee was a great man. The monument didn't confer that greatness to him. And it certainly doesn't take it away just because the monument went away. Yeah, people lost their minds. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing an article here from Boyd Cathy. I saw this uh, published earlier today on LewRockwell.com. Why we don't trust the media and why we're right not to. We'll get back to it here in just a moment. A quick shout out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. This is uh, who you want to talk to if you are in the market for a VA loan or a traditional loan or a reverse mortgage. And this is especially true for any of my listeners within the state of Utah and particularly those in southern Utah. It's a really intense real estate market right now. So when you find the home of your dreams, well, congratulations, but you better have your financing in order right then because it's not going to stick around for you. The competition's very fierce. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. 
They can make things happen and happen quickly because they have experience, they have clout, and a desire to really take care of you. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can call 435-703-4522 or see them at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. So back to Boyd Cathy's article about why we're right not to trust the media. And he talked about uh, how back on September 4th, you know, this uh, this woke quiz show on NPR um, asked an educated celebrity contestant, what was the name of the plantation, the famous plantation where George Washington lived on the Potomac? She couldn't answer it. She didn't know it was Mount Vernon. Real knowledge of American history is something that you know, people, people, they, they only know what uh, somebody has told them or, you know, th- there's a slogan that they can chant or something like this. But actually reading original sources, reading the words of the people in question, it's not like these guys were, were secretive and, you know, didn't, they never wrote anything down. No, they had, they had lots and lots of correspondence, lots of things that, that, that they put down on paper. Very prolific writers. So why don't more people know? Well, part of it could be laziness. Part of it could be that they've just been shepherded in a direction that that persuades them that uh, everything we need to know, you know, I will tell you. In fact, uh, Boyd Cathy points out, to follow the template of the new breed of academic scholars, where you get people like Ibram X. Kendi, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project, or Robin DeAngelo. Whiteness is akin to a terminal disease, an inherited, fatal, and in- ineradicable malady which must literally be torn out of society, extinguished, totally expelled. And far, far too many of our educators either believe this rubbish or, at the very least, go along with it or simply refuse to oppose it because they fear being labeled racist or banned on Twitter or Facebook or perhaps severely punished at work or canceled in the public square. The outrageous examples abound. Now, there has been, of course, pushback. But in our present society, the major vehicles of communication and learning are possessed by those who, he puts it boldly, wish our extinction. And they employ those media with an unrelenting zeal, an almost hysterical commitment, which borders on sheer madness or lunacy. Boyd Cathy says they are, as he wrote back on December 2nd of 2020, in one of his columns, the modern equivalents of pod people. Human beings possessed demonically of an inextinguishable, all-encompassing ideology of fanaticism, which resembles a psychopathic illness. Now, he says, over the years, I've noticed that one of the most effective weapons in our small quiver is humor, especially the kind that at times is, is simple sometimes is ironic and that literally slaps you in the face. That's one of the reasons why Tucker Carlson has been so successful. He's able to combine a withering critique of the latest politically correct abomination, oftentimes something very serious, with the ability to simplify and demonstrate the utter ridiculousness, the laughable, if it weren't so serious, inconsistencies of so much that passes for politics, education, and media in our benighted nation. Now, you don't have to read a long and involved policy report, although perhaps after commentary by Carlson, finishing with an amusing zinger, you might be persuaded to. Boyd Cathy says knowledge and understanding are, in a real sense, 
intuited by the listener or viewer. The image projected, often sardonic or ironically sarcastic, laced with ridicule, but all the same, hitting the mark. Recently, The Guardian, that major purveyor of leftist thought and information in Britain, complained, is right-wing comedy on the rise? Well, I could see where that would bother them. And one of the right-wing comedians on the rise that The Guardian obliquely attacks is a Russian-born Brit named Konstantin Kaizen. We're actually going to talk about him coming up. Now, Boyd Cathy says, look, I admit that I'd never heard of him until just the other day when I ran across his fascinating and searingly accurate portrait of the dominant media, both American and British. Titled, Why Won't They Believe Us? It showed up in the tablet on August 10th of this year. And although its main goal is to explain with irony and thinly veiled humor why so many people are reluctant and hesitant to get vaccinated for COVID, indeed doubt about and mistrust of the entire agenda that government is now foisting off on its citizens, what Kieson writes has far greater application in Western society concerning the role of what Dr. Paul Craig Roberts has termed the prostitutes, that is, our servile media. Kaysen's essay is like a rapier thrust into the puffed-up belly of our establishment media and government, slowly building, then twisting into its target, and at the same time, causing us to reflect on the ideological insanity of our media and the deep state the media whores for. And Boyd Cathy says, in the present combat in which no prisoners can or should be taken, it may well be more effective than the latest statistical study issued by the Heritage Foundation or other pseudo-conservative outfits more concerned with appearances than the real grungy combat we must engage in. And then he links to that essay, Why Don't They Believe Us? Now, I'm going to share that essay, or at least parts of that essay, with you coming up here in the next segment. But I just want to take a moment here to, to point out Humor is definitely an effective tool. In fact, this is one of the things that the really woke. I mean, you can if you stand there and you shout back and forth and you get angry and you match their anger for anger. Oh, they thrive on that. They feed on that kind of energy. That's exactly the kind of dynamic they're trying to create. Get you angry, suck you in and, you know, destroy you with that with your own anger. But when it comes to satire or parody, or in some cases, outright ridicule, depending on how preposterous, you know, the the issue is at hand. That's something they can't handle, especially they cannot handle being ridiculed. Politicians feel this way, too. They do not like being questioned, and they certainly do not like being laughed at. I'm not suggesting that we should all be engaging in, you know, Andrew Dice Clay type, you know, cutting humor that's, that's all about putting other people down or putting people in their place. What I'm suggesting, though, is I think we all benefit when we lighten up a little bit, right? I have found, and this is just my own, you know, anecdotal experience, so don't uh, don't think that I'm trying to cite this as some kind of a proven clinical medical study, but I have found that when times are difficult, if I can find something to laugh about, that's the little boost I need to reassure me that, you know what, it's not that bad. We can get through. We can persevere. We can survive. You just got to have a little bit of humor and be able to laugh at it. So there's my challenge for you. So I go to break here, 
it's uh, take a little bit of time to find something that, that can put a smile on your face or something that can bring a sensible chuckle to your lips. Okay, it doesn't even have to be sensible. All I'm going to suggest here is that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of serious stuff going on, and sometimes it feels like everything is oh so serious. We're never gonna we're never gonna get away from it. Okay, decompress, laugh a little bit, unplug if you have to. When we come back, we're going to talk about why don't they believe us? The questions so many in the media are asking. After all we've done for you, why don't you believe us when we tell you get the vaccine? We'll explain why after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to one of my great sponsors. That would be lifesavingfood.com. I know you're probably down with the idea of food storage, right? Self-reliance, that's a good thing. And it's not so much that, boy, you know, we can see the four horsemen of the apocalypse and they are coming fast. It's more a matter of just being prepared for life, whatever that may bring. And having a nice, stable supply of food with a 25-year shelf life, well, let's just say that can contribute greatly to a person's peace of mind when things are a little bit out of control or seem like they're, they're spiraling out of control. They have a lot of different packages to choose from. Look, if you're serious about starting a a complete food storage program, I want you to know lifesavingfood.com can definitely help you there. If you have an existing program and just want to fill in a few gaps here and there, they can do that as well. Click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Go to lifesavingfood.com. If you decide to make a purchase, please use my last name, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code, They'll take 10% off your price. There you go. So let's talk for a moment about why the media is so hard to believe. I mean, it's very common to hear media heads going back and forth on CNN and so forth over issues like, why why are people vaccine hesitant? Why won't they take our word for it on these life or death matters? Well, Constantine Kissin, or Kissin rather, has a pretty compelling explanation for why the media keep asking themselves, why won't they believe us? And this is some satire, but listen to the truth of what he's saying here, too. He says, imagine you're a normal person. The year is 2016. Rightly or wrongly, you believe most of what you see in the media. You believe polls are broadly reflective of public opinion. You believe doctors and scientists are trustworthy and independent. You're a decent, reliable, reasonable person who follows the rules and trusts the authorities. So imagine your shock then when Brexit, which you were assured wouldn't happen because it was a fringe movement led by racists for racists, happens. The polls, which widely predicted it wouldn't happen, were wrong. The experts and pundits who told you day after day that it wouldn't happen were also wrong. How well you think these things happen. Now imagine that soon after Brexit, Donald Trump is running for president. You are told by the most trustworthy media outlets he's going to lose. Some experts say his opponent has a 99% chance of winning. Imagine waking up the morning after the election to discover that the pollsters, experts, and politicians you still trusted were wrong again. 
Now the racist monster who you were told would never get near the White House is the leader of the free world. How did this happen, you ask yourself? How could everyone I rely on for good information be so wrong? Well, it was the Russians, they tell you. The Russians did Brexit, and they got Trump elected too. Now he says, imagine that for the next three years, day after day, the media and politicians you still trust to keep you up to date on this story of Trump's collusion uh, with, with Russia. They tell you the how, when, where, and why, the dossiers, the whistleblowers, the peeing prostitutes. Imagine your desperation for things to make sense again. Somehow. And then here comes the Mueller report. Hard evidence of foreign meddling in Brexit in the 2016 election is coming to set the world right again. But he says, imagine your shock then when you discover that Brexit had little to do with foreign meddling. And Robert Mueller had very little to report about Trump and the Russians. The collusion story which dominated your news intake for the better part of three years slowly dies down. And then it's gone. No one talks about it anymore. Imagine that bit by bit, you're starting to feel that the events you were told would not and could not happen, not only happened, but happened without some sort of malign interference. Instead, millions of your fellow citizens simply voted for them. In the American case, it turns out that many of your fellow citizens who simply voted for Trump come from states that have been devastated by an opioid epidemic enabled by a corrupt system of incentives involving the Food and Drug Administration's doctors and big pharma. He says, you might want to take note of this. It'll come up again later. And again, you ask yourself, how could this happen? And again, the media outlets and the political representatives you've always trusted have the answer. Racism. Your country is racist, they tell you. If you're white, this may seem strange to you. Other than a handful of idiots, you've never met a racist. If you're an ethnic minority, immigrant like me, he says, well, this seems even stranger. Why would people in one of the most welcoming, tolerant countries in the world want to convince themselves their country is racist when it's so obviously not. But the evidence is right there on your TV screen. Imagine your horror as a famous and beloved gay African-American actor is assaulted by MAGA hat-wearing thugs who racially abuse him and put a noose around his neck. In a primetime interview, he cries while talking about it. Imagine your outrage as you see news reports of a bunch of MAGA hat-wearing kids from a religious school contemptuously confronting a Native American elder. Professional adult commentators on TV tell you that kid has a punchable face. And while you abhor violence, it's hard to disagree. Imagine that for days you watch coverage of these events with expert after expert, pundit after pundit, sharing and fueling your outrage. Maybe your country really is racist. Maybe you're racist. Were you always just blind? Imagine soon after, however. The Josie Smollett story turns out to be an attention-seeking hoax. He made it all up. Imagine you also quickly discover that the Native American elder was the one who confronted the kids, and not the other way around. If this is such a racist country, you ask yourself, why would they need to make up stories of racism? As you ponder this, you remember that for years now, you've been expected to go along with other, more elaborate, make-believe stories. You're expected to believe or understand that gender is not as binary as school. Your eyes and even your own experience have led you to believe. Whatever you learned about biology growing up is not only wrong, it's pathological and harmful, according to the American Psychological Association. 
You no longer know how many genders you're expected to be able to recognize. You do know that asking questions is dangerous. Imagine that you still want to believe the experts and commentators. But now that requires you to believe that your country is racist, that men are bad, that gender is a social construct, which is an idea you still don't really understand. It's at this point a pandemic breaks out in China. You're initially unconcerned, but as terrifying scenes increasingly emerge from Italy and other countries closer to home, it's clear that something big is happening. You watch nervously as politicians give press conference after press conference flanked by experts to explain the situation. President Trump shuts down travel to the United States from China. He has been widely condemned as a racist repeatedly in the past, and the same explanation is given this time. It's not just Americans who tell you Trump is racist for calling a virus that emerged in China a Chinese virus. In response, the mayor of Florence advises Italian citizens to fight Trump's anti-Chinese bigotry by hugging a Chinese person. Shortly after, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, one of the most respected and powerful Democrats in the country, visits Chinatown in San Francisco to explain there's no reason tourists or locals should be staying away from that area because of coronavirus concerns. Thank God there are some sensible, non-racist people who aren't overreacting. Reacting, rather, you say to yourself. Now imagine watching as Trump doubles down on his racism by claiming the virus may have come from a lab in Wuhan. Nonsense, you think? You're more concerned with how best to protect yourself and your family from this deadly disease than with its origins at this point anyway. You consider buying surgical masks or using homemade ones. You've seen visitors and tourists from Asian countries wear them, and they've been through things like this before, so maybe it's best to follow their lead. But the country's chief medical experts tell you not to wear masks and to focus on washing your hands instead. As lockdowns are introduced around the world, you diligently follow all the rules. You stay home. You only go out once and live off savings and government grants. You do your best to keep your hands clean, to not touch other surfaces that other people touch. Some political representatives make the solemn decision to shut down beaches, parks, and playgrounds, encouraging everyone to stay indoors. You are proud to be doing your part. Thanks to you and millions of your fellow citizens, the first wave of the pandemic overwhelms certain hotspots, but it does not devastate the health care system at a national level. And while thousands sadly die, you've helped protect those around you. Now imagine your confusion as the same people who spent three months telling you not only that masks don't work, but there are several reasons you shouldn't wear or purchase them, suddenly introduce mask mandates. We're following the science, they tell you. This seems to make little sense, but a pandemic is no time for questions. And who knows? Maybe our understanding of science evolved. As you cautiously go to the supermarket, you notice masks have made people less likely to socially distance. You remember reading somewhere that bicycle helmets work similarly. They give the wearer more confidence. The result is more accidents and injuries, not fewer. Silly people, you say to yourself, if only they would follow the experts. Got to take a quick break here. I'm going to come back to Constantine Kissin's uh, article, Why Don't They Believe Us? Remember, this is the media asking themselves, why don't they believe us? Why are people still vaccine hesitant? Well, if you stuck around this long, I think you'll like the finish. We'll get to it right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Why don't they believe us? This is the question that many people within the chattering class are asking themselves. The Brian Stelters of the world. (laughs) The Rachel Maddows. The Keith Olbermans. Okay, maybe he doesn't ask that. I think Keith is pretty convinced he's he's got it all figured out. Well, Constantin Kassin, writing in tabletmag.com, has an excellent piece of it's It's parody, but at the same time, there's a lot of truth in what he's saying. Imagine that you were a normal person in 2016 who watched Brexit happen after all the experts told you, no, 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 that's just a racist thing for racists, but it's never going to happen, and then it does. Then they tell you Donald Trump, that racist monster, he's never going to get near the White House. And then he gets elected. Now the pandemic has come. You go to the supermarket. You notice that some people are wearing masks after they were first told, don't wear any masks. What next? Constantine Kassin says you turn on your TV, you learn that shoppers at the local supermarket aren't the only ones who've been ignoring the rules. Uh Uh-oh. Nancy Pelosi arranged for a salon shut down by government decree to open privately for her, and then she publicly blamed the business owner for violating the lockdown. Wow. California Governor Gavin Newsom is seen eating dinner at one of the most expensive restaurants in America with a large group of unmasked people indoors. In the UK, Neil Ferguson, the epidemiologist whose projections were used as the basis for lockdowns, appears to have broken his own rules to get some action with his married lover. Prime Minister Boris Johnson's chief advisor, Dominic Cummins, drove halfway across the country to ensure he had a better place to isolate. The journalists who berate him for this are later have found to have attended an unmasked indoor birthday party in breach of their rules. But the lockdowns continue. Then a man is killed in Minneapolis by a police officer arresting him for a petty crime. The man is African-American, the officer is white, the arrest and murder are captured on video, which quickly goes viral around the world. Imagine your horror as you watch an officer of the law kneel on another man's neck until he passes out and later dies. This is disgusting, you say to yourself. I hope they throw the book at him. Overnight, a huge campaign for racial justice springs up around the world. Now, no one explains what racism had to do with the incident, but they don't need to. As you know by now, the West is racist. America is racist. Police are racist. Therefore, any time a crime has a white perpetrator and an African-American victim, there's only one possible motive. The fact that an identical incident, incident led to the death of a white man named Tony Timpa in Dallas in August 2016, that's never mentioned for context. And while the lockdown rules remain in place, the protests against injustice spill out into public places. Tens of thousands of people crowd into the streets of major cities. Few of them wear masks. And social distancing is non-existent. Clashes with police ensue, and in the United States, protesters loot stores, destroy businesses, attack residents, and start fires. A retired African-American police officer from St. Louis named David Dorn is among dozens of people murdered in the chaos. The media then describes these events as mostly peaceful protests, as broadcast reporters stand in front of burning buildings. After months of harsh restrictions, the media and political class offer no criticism of protests that violate every element of lockdown policy. After months of telling you to stay at home to avoid spreading COVID, 
Doctors explain that rather than being a potential form of super of super spreading, protest is a profound public health intervention. Right. Big tech companies go into overdrive to stop the spread of what they call disinformation. Alternative points of view regarding the efficacy of masks and lockdowns, as well as the origins of the virus itself, are increasingly blocked, flagged, and censored. Attempts to discuss the negative impacts of lockdowns on the health and mental well-being, especially that of children, barred from going to school, are suppressed. And as the year runs on with a pivotal U.S. election looming, Trump promises a huge push to develop a vaccine. Then-Senator Kamala Harris, running for vice president, says that if Trump advised people to take a vaccine, she wouldn't take it. Now, on the eve of the election, a major media outlet releases a damaging report about Hunter Biden, son of presidential candidate Joe Biden. The story alleges corruption that may implicate his father as well as drug use, paying for prostitutes, and more. Twitter and other social media platforms immediately prevent the story from being shared. The media lines up commenters or commentators rather to claim the story was yet again Russian disinformation. Now, once Hunter's father wins the election, it becomes clear that several key elements of the story are likely accurate. And the laptop from which the information was recovered is, in fact, not a Russian decoy, but Hunter Biden's laptop. Meanwhile, in the U.K., the publicly available number of COVID patients and deaths nationwide turns out to have been inaccurate. For some time, any British citizen who died at any point for any reason after having tested positive for COVID was counted as dying from COVID, even if it was from a car crash. The official figure is later revised again. By the way, he has links in his article, Constantine Kassin, links. So this is not just him making this up. You can, you can check the documentation yourself. He says the number of people who were in the hospital because of COVID also turns out to be incorrect. Now that a bigot is no longer president of the United States, closing national borders to visitors from other countries is no longer considered xenophobic. In fact, it's widely advocated in the media. Likewise, it's no longer considered racist to detain people at the border, put them in holding cells to deport them or simply turn them away. The supposedly racist conspiracy theory that the virus came from a lab in Wuhan is now open for discussion. It even looks like the most credible explanation of the origin of the virus. Imagine your horror when you learned the reason thousands of people died in the first wave of the pandemic was that elderly patients with COVID were allowed and in fact sometimes compelled to be released back into nursing homes. In fact, it was a personal decision by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, brother of CNN anchor Chris Cuomo. Governor Cuomo's publisher later suspends promotion of a book he wrote in the meantime. It's about his leadership during the pandemic. Meanwhile, Texas and Florida, which remained largely open and avoided draconian lockdowns, seem to have made out okay. Kids have been going to school. Businesses have stayed open. You look at COVID death rates by state, and neither Florida nor Texas cracks the top half. It's at this point that vaccines become the main focus of government policy and media commentary. The same people who told you Brexit would never happen, that Trump would never win, and that when he did win, it was because of Russian collusion, but also because of racism, that you must follow lockdowns while they don't, that masks don't work, that masks do work, that social justice protests during pandemic lockdowns are a form of health intervention, that ransacking African-American communities in the name of fighting racism is a mostly peaceful form of protest, that poor and undeserved children locked out of shuttered schools are still learning, 
and that Jussie Smollett was the victim of a hate crime, that men are toxic, there's an infinite number of genders, that COVID couldn't have come from a lab until maybe it did, that closing borders is racist until maybe it isn't, that you shouldn't take Trump's to vaccine, that you must take the the vaccine developed during the Trump administration, that Andrew Cuomo is a great leader, that Andrew Cuomo is a granny killer, that the number of COVID deaths is one thing and then another, These are the same people now telling you that the vaccine is safe, that you must take it, and that if you don't, you will be a second-class citizen. Understand vaccine hesitancy now? I'm sorry, but that one is going to leave a mark. That's uh, that's not a backhanded slap. That is an open-handed whack across the cheek, and there's a face print right there on the cheek of most members of the American media. And for that matter, it could be other media outlets as well. I'll have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Bottom line is you've got to make up your own mind. You've got to be the one to think and speak freely. But at the same time, I'm going to come back to, to my conversation with my friend last night. Don't overload yourself. Do not overdose or gorge yourself on all of the information that is being, you know, blasted at you. Maybe you've picked up on this. I've certainly started to notice this, and it was particularly in my Facebook feed. Um, there's, there's, of course, the news headlines. Something about the way those news headlines are written. They are written to elicit a response because I read them and I'm like, ooh. That one is is like somebody thumping their finger into my chest. And and, and it, it took a little while for me to realize this is somebody deliberately trying to get a rise out of me. They're trying to use my sense of outrage to get me to click on their story and find out just how, you know, how much I disagree. No matter how you slice it, that's manipulation. Don't give in to being manipulated. These uh, The folks who, who do this for a living, these highly uh, paid and blow-dried spinmeisters... They're very good at what they do. That's why they pocket millions of dollars for managing the narrative for the people who pay them those millions of dollars. you got to own your own worldview. And if that means taking a break from the media, you're probably going to be better for it. Just a little something to consider. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you're just discovering this program, I'm going to do my best not to scare you off within the first segment, but just know, I believe the battle for your mind is a real thing. And I'm not trying to claim your mind as my own. I'm encouraging you to claim your mind as your own. I guess you could say I'm I'm trying to create a cult that thinks for itself. Yeah, we brainwash people into thinking for themselves, and if you would uh, give this a chance, you know, to, to listen... I'll do my best to make it worth your while. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org. You want to learn about an education for our time? Click on the link that I provide in the show notes 
at thebrianhydeshow.com. Also, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah, and also lifesavingfood.com. You want to get serious about food storage or just add to your existing food storage program? Again, links to each one of these sponsors in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So I try to do my best to shed light on what is happening without simultaneously creating more anger, more fear, or that sense of being overwhelmed that, oh my gosh, it's all just out of control. I don't know about you, but uh, when, when I get the the notion that someone is trying to manipulate me, it takes me off. I mean, I, I don't want to be somebody else's puppet. And there's a lot of, uh, I mean, open manipulation is one thing. If you don't buy me this ice cream cone, Dad, you don't love me. All right, I have six kids. I've, I've pretty much been inoculated against that kind of manipulation. The kind of manipulation I'm talking about, though, is much more subtle. And in fact, it's it's so relent, unrelenting and so um, just everywhere. It's pretty tough to escape. A few weeks ago, I shared with you an, uh, a video from the Academy of Ideas about uh, mass psychosis and how it spreads throughout a society. And some of the examples that were given were, you know, the Salem witch trials, you know, in the, in the uh, late... Uh, 1600s, early 1700s. I mean, there was there was some pretty pretty hinky stuff going on there. Well, we have a similar mass psychosis taking hold in our society today. And and the more I look at uh, the Academy of Ideas, the more I realize they really have some great content. One of the articles, or actually one of the videos, I should say that uh, that I just came across. It's about a 13 minute long video. It's called "How to Escape from a Sick Society." And this is, again, very insightful, very worth your time. I want to play about a two-minute excerpt because this speaks to um, something that I think a lot of people are confronting right now, and that is the idea of, okay, things are, are definitely getting crazy. I recognize not everything is as it should be, but the question is, what can we do about it? You know, for a lot of people, the idea is, well, keep your head down, don't draw attention to yourself, and, you know, just play it cool. <laughs> But when you do that, when you fail to speak up and when you fail to take courageous action, you allow tyranny to prevail. So this is from the last couple of minutes of the video, How to Escape from a Sick Society. And if you're just waiting for that, that thing that will wake everybody up, check this out. Also includes a quotation from one of, one of my favorite books on uh, the signs of the times. Listen to this. In place of mere hope, courageous action from as many people as possible is needed to prevent the rise of totalitarian rule. And the sooner people act in defiance of would-be totalitarians, the greater the chance of success. For the mistake that was made over and over again in the totalitarian countries of the 20th century was that people didn't act soon enough. Milton Mayer, in his book They Thought They Were Free interviews an individual who lived through Hitler's rule, and his words should serve as a warning for those who live in a world at risk of being engulfed by the life-destroying machinery of totalitarian rule. You wait for one great shocking occasion, thinking that others, when such a shock comes, will join with you in resisting somehow, but the one great shocking occasion, when tens or hundreds of thousands will join with you, never comes. 
If the last and worst act of the whole regime had come immediately after the first and smallest, thousands, yes, millions, would have been sufficiently shocked. But of course this isn't the way it happens. In between comes all the hundreds of little steps, some of them imperceptible, each of them preparing you not to be shocked by the next. And one day, too late, your principles, if you were ever sensible of them, all rush in upon you, and you see that everything, everything has changed. Now you live in a world of hate and fear, and the people who hate and fear do not even know it themselves. When everyone is transformed, no one is transformed. Wow. I mean, that's, that's about as direct as it can be. So I've got links in the show notes to the Academy of Ideas and their videos. Now, there are some of their videos that are um, accessible only to members. But, man, they have some good content. Here's another video of this. Why an obsession with safety creates sick minds and a sick society. And I hope you understand. I'm I'm not throwing those words out there just to be pejorative. Uh, You're all sick. Bunch of sickos. I'm calling you names and you should feel bad. It's just the recognition that a lot of people are caught up in. Um, I, I would liken it to the biggest uh, you know, psychological operation that, that anybody could point to. This is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm kind of an advocate of, you know, you've got to unplug. And in some cases, you may choose to abstain from media just to, to bring that, uh, that equilibrium back into your life. You know, there's a truism about uh, if, if you tell me what makes you mad, I can usually tell fairly accurately where you get your information from. Just by you describing, these are the things that upset me. Because different media outlets have different ways of reporting things. and you know. But the bottom line is, that's manipulation too. Being, being made mad, you know, is, is part of that manipulation. So, I recommend take a look at the Academy of Ideas they, they really have some, some marvelous food for thought. I think their latest video would be worth your time. Something that uh, they, they obviously put a lot of work and research into. And if you can get your hands on a copy of Milton Mayer's book, uh, They Thought They Were Free, The Germans, 1933 to 1945. It's one of the best things that I have ever read in documenting that little incremental shift that moved the German people from a very prosperous, well-educated, first-world nation in every possible way to, you know, a society that, that tolerated goose-stepping and, you know, atrocities that, that to this day are synonymous with some of the worst things that humanity has ever engaged in. Like Milton Meyer says, if it, if it came all at once... If the very worst things were, you know, boom, right there at the very beginning, people would call it. But when it comes incrementally, when it comes just a little bit at a time, it's hard to it's hard to perceive it. I mean, a lot of things have changed around us in the last year and a half, right? Even though those have been pretty shocking changes. And sometimes, you know, sparked uh, borderline panic. Remember the empty store shelves? No toilet paper. Oh, what are we going to do? But for the most part, it's just a slow and steady progression. And one of the greatest acts of self-preservation that you or I can engage in is to consciously choose to withdraw from that or to refuse to give our allegiance or our consent to such thinking. 
Now, of course, that uh, invites uh, some some danger as well. You know as well as I do that if you espouse points of view that that run counter to uh, what uh, what is considered acceptable opinion in society, there's going to be pushback. You know, people are going to call you names. Ooh, you know, I, I mean, actually, I shouldn't I shouldn't downplay that. For some people, that's a very painful thing. I don't want to be called names. Yeah, it's not fun. And it hurts. You know, the first the first time you have to really take a shot of somebody questioning your motives and calling you names and ascribing the, the worst intentions to anything that you're doing, it sucks. It's it's not fun at all. At the same time, if you're not willing to suffer for your beliefs, you gotta ask yourself, what are my beliefs really worth? You know, how committed am I to what I believe? If if you're not willing to to have some skin in the game and to, to stick your neck out on occasion. Now, if there's some good news to this, I guess it would be you, you grow thicker skin. You learn to deal with it. You learn to distinguish between, okay, so this person's calling me names. That's not the end of the world. That's not the same thing as being canceled. When we come back on the other side of the break, I'm going to introduce you to a great article that I came across uh, last night. Nick Gillespie writing for reason.com has a very lengthy but informative essay on self-cancellation, deplatforming, and censorship. If you're a defender of free speech, I think you're going to appreciate this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Hey, I appreciate your feedback. And if you would go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, you will find that at the end of each day's show notes, there is not only a chance for you to, uh, you can drop a comment there if you'd like. I respond to as many comments as I can. I don't have enough listeners right now to uh, you know, to make it so burdensome. Oh, my goodness, I can never answer all of these. So if, if you have something to say, uh, chances are very good you will hear back from me. Also, if you're feeling sporty, and this is just if, you can, you can click on a link which will take you to where you can leave me a voicemail. And I'm totally okay with using the voicemail, you know, as part of the show. Maybe that's scaring some people. But uh, if you want to leave me a voice message, you can do that as well. I do love to hear from you. I also want to encourage you to check out my sponsors like uh, lifesavingfood.com. Something that I saw recently that I thought was just a, a brilliant bit of, of uh, food storage uh, preparation as well as marketing. It's a seven-day emergency dry bag. We're talking 60 servings of entree meals, and I mean, this is good stuff. You're talking brown sugar and maple, multigrain cereal, uh, granola, cheesy macaroni, creamy pasta and vegetables, uh, gluten-free potatoes and chicken pot pie, gluten-free teriyaki rice, savory stroganoff, but it's in a dry bag. You can roll the top of the bag. It's like, like you would take on a river rafting trip. Food is safely sealed in Mylar pouches, 25-year shelf life, something you can grab and go and it's only $109.99. And if you use my last name, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, at checkout, they'll take 10% off the purchase. Wouldn't that be a handy thing to have? Lifesavingfood.com. It's there in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. All right, let's talk about self-cancellation, 
deplatforming and censorship. This is an article called The Taxonomy of Cancel Culture. It's from Nick Gillespie. This is a very lengthy essay. But it's worth your time to go through and and get a better understanding about cancel culture. Why? Because you may not feel that you are famous enough or you're, you know, notorious enough to draw attention and, you know, face the wrath of cancel culture. But I promise you, free speech is still an issue that, that is very much uh, a part of, of what being a free individual entails. And cancel culture is a direct attack on free speech, the ability to think and speak what you believe is truth. Nick Gillespie uh, points out here, he says, in an age of cancel culture, it's perhaps fitting that the death of a free speech hero would receive little fanfare. Now, I had never heard of uh, this particular free speech hero, so I guess I'm I'm in the you know I'm in the ignorant masses on this one. Poet, publisher, provocateur Lawrence Ferlinghetti shuffled off this mortal coil in February at the grand old age of 101. Now, Nick Gillespie says there were dutiful obituaries in the New York Times and elsewhere, but the respects were hardly commensurate with the debt owed the man. Apparently, Ferlinghetti, back in 1956, published Allen Ginsberg's F-word-filled poem, Howl. And this was pretty risky. I mean, think about the 50s. Leave it to Beaver, right? Father knows best. Oof. Yeah, he risked jail and financial ruin. But he did as much as any individual to end not just government censorship, but a stultifyingly repressive American intellectual culture. When Ferlinghetti was hauled into court... At that time, legitimate U.S. publishers wouldn't touch books like Lady Chatterley's Lover or The Tropic of Cancer for fear of being charged with obscenity. He helped create the period of increasingly free and open expression that morals scolds increasingly in the name of progressive visions of anti-racism are challenging today. Now, interestingly enough, the obituaries reported that Ferlinghetti, who skippered a submarine chaser during World War II and returned from service an ardent pacifist, died of interstitial lung disease. But on a mythopoetic level, Nick Gillespie says, I prefer to think that he gave up the ghost because he knew his brand of free expression was no longer welcome in the country for which he fought so bravely in wartime and peacetime. I am signaling you through the flames, he wrote in Poetry as Insurgent Art, one of his later works, you can conquer the conquerors with words, but not if words themselves are the problem. Do you see the relationship this has to your ability to remain free? This is why defenders of free speech should be paying attention to cancel culture. As Nick Gillespie describes it, that hotly contested yet vague concept that defines the current movement or the current moment like flappers and bathtub gin defined the 1920s or communist scares and juvenile delinquency define the 1950s, and leisure suits and encounter groups define the 1970s. Author Jonathan Rausch distinguishes canceling from mere criticism in that its practitioners seek to organize and manipulate the social or media environment in order to isolate, deplatform, or intimidate ideological opponents. In other words, cancel culture isn't just about seeking truth. It's about shaping the information battlefield in order to coerce conformity and reduce the scope for forms of criticism that are not sanctioned by the prevailing consensus of some local majority. 
I like that they call it the information battlefield. And I think one of the most telling symptoms of of the sickness in our society is that uh, there is really a battle going on for your mind, but very few people realize that uh, that's the battlefield. It's not out there in the streets. It's not out there with Antifa and the Proud Boys. It's the battle for your mind. Now, Nick Gillespie says, look, someone calling you a jackass on Twitter, that's criticism. Somebody organizing a mob to get you kicked off Twitter, fired from your job, and put out on a figurative ice flow, that's cancel culture. And don't look at the left as, you know, the sole, you know, purveyors of cancel culture. Former President Donald Trump, himself a target of social media cancellation, exemplified cancel culture back in 2018 when he called on the NFL to fire players who took a knee during the playing of the national anthem. He even mused aloud about deporting truculent athletes too. You have to proud you have to stand proudly for the national anthem or you shouldn't be playing, you shouldn't be there. That's what he told Fox and Friends. Maybe you shouldn't be in the country. At a 2017 rally, he told a crowd that he'd love to see one of these NFL owners when someone disrespects our flag to say, "Get that son of a bee off the field right now. Out. He's fired. He's fired." Now, cancel culture, Nick Gillespie says, operates on at least three different levels, the personal, the corporate, and the political. But each one is more troubling the next than the next because each one casts a broader net and eliminates more and more options. So it's one thing for me to cancel my Twitter account after being attacked as morally obtuse, but it's worse to be permanently kicked off the site because the moderators have decided I'm beyond redemption and even more troubling to have the government shut down Twitter because it allowed my awful speech. Nick Gillespie says it's almost tempting to single out that last level, because the other two involve individuals or private entities who ultimately should be free to do what they want. Only the government can engage in true censorship, surely. But the three layers work synergistically to increase the cultural and political regulation of thought and expression. So to be a free and open society as possible, he says, we need to challenge the precepts of cancel culture at all levels. Now, we're coming up on our break here in a moment, but let's touch for just a moment on self-cancellation. That's where individuals take the initiative to put themselves out of the public's misery. And Nick Gillespie says they are in many ways the purest manifestation of cancel culture because they reveal the religious cum totalitarian sensibility undergirding the process. From the Spanish Inquisition through Mao's struggle sessions, it wasn't enough to simply damn the accused. The goal was to make them testify to their own moral and ideological failings to show they were doing the work and owning their sins. He has a pretty good example of this, too. So let's pump the brakes here. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll revisit this in just a few moments. It's a very lengthy essay, probably something you could put on your reading for the weekend if you want. I think it's worthwhile, though. If you really want to understand cancel culture and understand why, regardless of whatever risks you may face, it's worth standing up for your freedom of speech. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. 
sharing with you this article from Nick Gillespie from Reason.com about self-cancellation, deplatforming, and censorship. And if you're feeling pretty smug right now, like, well, I've never been in that position and I never will be because, you know, I just know how to, how to play the system. Um, trust me, you, you don't have to have a show of your own. You don't have to be some kind of, you know, pseudo-celebrity or even minor internet celebrity. If people are trying to coerce you into not thinking a certain way or not expressing yourself a certain way or not supporting whatever it is that you would support, that's some pretty thin ice. And it, it, it treads onto some areas that have, have great importance. I'll just throw one of them out there just for the sake of argument. If your freedom of speech is something that is subject to the approval of whether it's the cancel culture mob or corporate America or even the government, it's not a very far journey, you know, to, to think that religious thought will become subject to this, maybe even more so than it already is. And when you get to where freedom of conscience is under attack, where your ability to, to freely worship according to the dictates of your conscience, where that's under attack... That's a very dangerous place to be. It's not a coincidence that the most despotic regimes the world has ever seen always made it a priority to root out and get rid of and to suppress religion as as hard as they possibly could. And, and I kind of understand why. It's because religion offers a moral authority, a competing moral authority, a higher moral authority than the party or the state or whatever, you know, controlling, you know, interest is in charge at the moment. They don't like that competition. Totalitarians do not like the idea that there may be some competing moral authority. There can only be theirs. So the time to make the stand is before they've got all their controls firmly in place. Let's talk for a moment about uh, self-cancellation. And you know, I still, I'm a little bit torn here. I don't know if I agree with Nick Gillespie's uh, um, take on uh, Mumford & Sons uh, banjoist uh, Marshall, Winston Marshall. We talked about him on the program here a few weeks ago, where uh, the, the banjo player for Mumford & Sons announced back in March he was taking time away from the band to examine his blind spots after he unforgivably endorsed a book that purports to unmask Antifa's radical plan to destroy democracy. Now, I don't think Andy No is particularly a controversial journalist. Nick Gillespie apparently does, but that's his opinion. But his book, Unmasked, definitely pulls back the curtain on Antifa. It's enough that, I mean, he's at the top of several kill lists from, uh, from various Antifa groups. And they've been violent enough and unhinged enough that I think I'd probably take that pretty seriously. But Winston Marshall's crime was, he tweeted, finally had the time to read your important book, You're a Brave Man. He tweeted that to Andy No, And, of course, people went nuts. Why? Because someone famous drew attention to a book which uh, Antifa and its supporters, which, you know, is kind of a curious collection of people, they didn't want that attention. And the sad part is, Marshall said, I have offended a lot of people I don't know, but also those closest to me, including my bandmates. And for that, I am truly sorry. Now, I want to give the guy the benefit of the doubt because uh, he he did step away from the band 
because he said, I want to be able to freely speak my mind. So maybe he had some uh, buyer's remorse about that mea culpa. You know, he wasn't just sorry. He was truly sorry when he apologized for his wrong think. But at the same time that Marshall was doing the work of owning his sins, just like he would in a, in a Chinese revolution, uh, you know, a Mao's revolution uh, struggle session, the estate of Dr. Seuss announced it would cease publication of about a half dozen of the author's lesser-known works because they portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong. For example, uh, uh, the first for the first time since 1937, when Seuss first published, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, with its depiction of a yellow-skinned, pigtail-wearing Chinaman who eats with sticks, we could all sleep better knowing that Elliot McGool's pool, the Cat's Quizzer, and other titles so obscure they haven't even been sold in years through the retailer bookscan tracks. According to the New York Times, they would be even more completely ignored. And to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, the canceled volume people are most likely to have heard of, sold about 5,000 copies last year, compared to 513,000 of Seuss's better-known Oh, the Places You'll Go. And there are other examples that he gives. I mean, there's Captain Underpants, there's the Test Kitchen. But he says, this is life today in these United States where a seemingly infinite supply of such incidents appears on a seemingly hourly basis, like automated bursts of super-concentrated air freshener in an airport bathroom. They're furiously discussed and disputed on MSNBC and Fox News, even in the halls of Congress. And then they're forgotten as promptly and completely as the great murder hornet scare of 10 minutes ago. It's cancel culture as Doritos, junk food snacks we wolf down, even as they make us feel guilty, a little queasy, and still hungry. As Jay Leno once canceled, crunch all you want, we'll make more. So there's self-cancellation, but there's also deplatforming. And these incidents are also distracting from the more serious threats to freedom of expression, particularly the continuous narrowing of acceptable discourse on social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook and even shopping platforms like Amazon and eBay. For instance, after the Dr. Seuss Foundation made its announcement, Amazon and eBay quickly banned sales of used copies of the canceled Seuss books, the sort of prohibition more commonly applied to Nazi memorabilia. What kind of simulation are we living in where it's easier to get your hands on a copy of Mein Kampf than to purchase Ellie McElliott's pool? McElligot's pool, sorry. Last week, uh, just weeks before, last fall, rather, weeks before the election, both Twitter and Facebook suppressed the New York Post story about then-candidate Joe Biden and his son Hunter's business dealings. Now, that's disturbing. Even if the ensuing publicity about the action led more people to read the story than might have otherwise. But this year, each site issued permanent bans on Trump, citing continuous breaches of their terms of service. In February, Amazon banned the book When Harry Became Sally, a 2018 book critical of the transgender movement. In an act that can be charitably characterized as bullying, four Republican senators demanded to know Amazon's thinking. We carefully consider the content we make available in our stores, and we review our approach regularly. Amazon responded, we have chosen not to sell books that frame LGBTQ plus identity as a mental illness. Now, from a strict libertarian perspective, those kind of decisions don't violate anybody's rights. In fact, they illustrate the exercise of them. Private individuals and businesses should have some broad, some would say limitless discretion on how they conduct their affairs especially those related to voluntary association. 
So part of Amazon's defense, he says, Nick says, is the simple, elegant declaration that we reserve the right not to sell certain content. All retailers make decisions about what selection they choose to offer, as do we. And they do have the right to do that. Yet, he says, such decisions are eminently open to criticism from customers, too. And not just because Amazon once aspired to sell every book in print. The problem is the narrowing of opinion and the marketplace of ideas. And this trend toward suppression isn't lost on progressives, at least not older ones like Glenn Greenwald or Matt Taibbi or Thomas Frank, all of whom are over 50 and increasingly find themselves at odds with a woke left that has little use for hosannas about free speech and that valorizes ethnic identity over class struggle. Now, he also spent some time on censorship. And I'm, I'm going to probably go ahead and step back from it here. The bottom line is, complaining and working to change the system, or voice, is a powerful strategy, says Nick Gillespie, both in politics and in dealing with online platforms. He says, we should loudly criticize platforms for kicking people off in arbitrary ways that diminish our ability to freely argue and disagree about politics and culture. We want more participation across the board, not less even if we believe businesses could rightly restrict res- expression however they see fit. Crazy stuff. He says, look, contemporary cancel culture can take on left or right flavorings and it can be enforced by governments, corporations, or individuals, but the bottom line is it all works to reduce our ability not just to talk freely, but to live freely. And Nick Gillespie says that is reason enough to contest it at every level. You can check out a link to his article in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Yeah, I put those show notes together uh, for the sake of anybody who wants to take a little bit deeper dive into the material that are, that's covered in the course of a day's show. I don't always have time to get to all the stories, but if you're looking for good, solid information, I, I only share what I consider to be good, credible information. doesn't mean it's perfect, but I do my best not to... Uh, send stuff your way that will lead you astray and I count on you to keep me on the straight and narrow too if you do find something that doesn't add up by all means drop me a note there's a place you can leave your comments there in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com back in just a moment this is the Brian Hyde Show This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I know if you are shopping for a home anywhere in the Intermountain West, but particularly in the state of Utah, you have probably noticed that this is the hottest real estate market that most people have ever seen in their lifetime. Yeah, it's it's pretty intense. When you find the home of your dreams, your financing has to be in place right now. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She understands what the lenders need. She understands what you as the borrower need. She is the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. You can contact her at 435-703-4522. You can stop by her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386 
and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So two quick stories I wanted to pass on in the final segment here. Another sign of the times, just in case you needed one, if you thought the abortion issue couldn't get more controversial. Various advocacy groups are now stepping forward following the passage of a strict anti-abortion law in Texas. Not just to protest the uh, anti-abortion law, but to insist that abortion is not just for women anymore. This is an article from Betsy Clark. It was published on intellectualtakeout.org. And Betsy Clark says, like childbearing, abortion isn't just for women anymore. At least that's the message coming from the LGBT community. And what were once thought of as as women's rights groups in response to Texas Senate Bill 8, the new Texas anti-abortion law. Now, these culturally powerful groups are using the new law to promote current gender ideology, which views reproduction as distinct from sex. The most sensational evidence of this agenda was Missouri Congresswoman Cori Bush's reference to mothers as birthing people to advance the proposition that men, albeit transgender, can give birth to. Because anyone can be a man or a woman, in their view, it follows that anyone can have an abortion, including men, and of course the non-binary. Having always sold abortion with euphemisms and lies, She says abortions proponents are now doubling down on promoting an additional destructive falsehood about biological realities. Senate Bill 8 is the unique approach taken by the Texas legislature to stop abortions beyond six weeks of pregnancy. The statute prohibits its own enforcement by any public official, instead authorizing and rewarding private citizens for filing civil suits against abortion facilitators with the exception of pregnant women who have no liability under the law. Now, significantly, the abortion-facilitating defendants may assert the affirmative defense that applying SB 8 in a given case is unconstitutional, so the law doesn't attempt to overrule Roe v. Wade. The U.S. Supreme Court was unable to block the statute from taking effect because no state action was implicated. Interesting. Further, because no private party had yet suffered any injury from its passage, there was no identifiable person to enjoin. Laws cannot be enjoined, only people's actions. So consistent with the democratic process that our political opponents have lectured us about so incessantly, the Texas anti-abortion statute took effect. And the outcome was unique and unexpected, and the statute's opponents have been melting down well, and fundraising ever since. Now, eventually, the statute's opponents will file a case involving real people, and a court will rule on the constitutionality of SB 8. Meanwhile, woke groups like the American Constitution Society, the liberal answer to the Federalist Society, are ginning up support for Texas organizations to fight the law. The day after Texas's anti-abortion law took effect, the American Constitution Society issued an email of alarm declaiming against the court and its two allegedly stolen seats bought by billionaires. The email denounced the court for failing to uphold the constitutional right of reproductive freedom and demanded court reform. In addition to requesting donations, the email listed nine Texas organizations that need help in reestablishing abortions. Now, what's curious about these entreaties and their organizations, though, is their angle. Rather than frankly promoting abortion as a guarantee of women's true equality, they largely avoid mentioning women at all, preferring to address those seeking abortions as people or Texans or some other genderless term. One promoted organization is the Buckles Bunny Fund, an abortion funder founded by young queer folks who harness their beautiful rage to make sure that no potential abortion goes unexecuted. 
It seems to have no other mission, and it does not mention women or why abortion might be important to them. As participants in sterile sexual relationships only, the members' interest in promoting promoting abortion is hard to understand unless homosexuals are satisfied that all battles for their own rights have been won. Another, the Lilith Fund, supports the right of all Texans to make their own reproductive choices, regardless of income. But this statement seems problematic. Does the fund really support reproductive freedom for men? And I don't mean the pregnant transgender ones, although the fund surely must. If so, a male would have a right to sire a child or have the pregnancy of a woman carrying his child terminated. Something tells me that the Lilith Fund's philosophy needs clarification, says Betsy Clark. Not to be outdone is the Clinic Access Support Network, which provides transportation in the Houston area to abortion appointments, promising to serve people regardless of their race, gender identity, or sexual orientation. Now, cisgender males could have a lot of fun with this organization by making its volunteers drive them around to abortion clinics. Such are the problems with intersectional allies trying to push conflicting agendas all at once. One can only conclude that transgender orthodoxy is overwhelming abortion politics by disassociating pregnancy and women in favor of universal gender fluidity. Now, this thesis is consistent with the observations of author Abigail Schreier. The transgender ideology intends to depreciate the value of females and deprive them of needed protections. Ironically, this agenda reveals the validity of the position of pro-life groups that abortion promoters never cared about women's health and preferences, but were instead pushing an ideology that belittled womanhood or motherhood rather, and homemaking and championed fulfillment in careers. Betsy Clark says it seems as though women continue to disappoint feminists with their natural choices, so the woke advocates are now trying to make them unimportant. She says, in 1973, abortion was heralded as a right bestowed upon pregnant women that would allow them to control their fertility so as to participate in civic life. But this concern is no longer articulated in the literature advocated by the featured Texas abortion advocates. And she says, given the uh, uh, peculiar way that abortion proponents are fighting SB 8, one wonders how much women really matter to them anymore. Advocates even appear slightly embarrassed at the thought that pregnancy and female biology are inseparable. So she asks, is society willing to accept the assertion that woman is no more than a self-selected gender with no special properties and therefore no distinct value? If so, the consequences of avoiding reality and acting on these lies will be tragic for everyone, but especially for women. Very interesting. One final thing here, too, if you find yourself growing weary of the never-ending mandates and expansions of government power in response to the COVID pandemic, that's not by accident. It's because those in authority have stopped trying to convince us, okay? It's not a matter of we're going to persuade you that this is the right way to go. No. Now it's just a matter of wearing us down. Ron Paul says, you know, the real pandemic is authoritarianism. And he uses the example of a Cook County judge, uh, James Shapiro in Illinois, reaching a new low in COVID tyranny by forbidding Rebecca Furlitt from seeing her 11-year-old son until she receives a COVID vaccine. Now, Judge Shapiro is not the only one in, uh, who's abusing his judicial power to force individuals to get vaccinated. Judges across the country have ordered defendants to get COVID vaccines, sometimes on a condition of avoiding prison. 
Ron Paul says this outbreak of judicial tyranny is a symptom of the authoritarianism pandemic that is the real threat to America. Corporations are imposing requirements, including employees show proof of vaccination, pay more for health insurance if they've not had a COVID vaccine, and undergo regular, in some cases weekly, COVID tests. An increasing number of state and local governments are requiring their employees and even people working in some private jobs to take COVID vaccines, as well as imposing impo- uh, vaccine passport requirements rather to uh, on, on people just generally. Ron Paul says, look, some people try to justify vaccine mandates and vaccine passports by saying that by risking infecting others, unvaccinated individuals endanger other people. But he points out that the Federal Centers for Disease Control recently admitted that COVID vaccines don't prevent the spread of infections. In addition, the claim that we're having a pandemic of the unvaccinated relies on data taken early in the year, before many Americans had taken the vaccines. He says it's imperative we support the growing resistance to to vaccine mandates and vaccine passports. And he also says we have to show the resistance and expand the resistance to COVID authoritarianism, to resistance to all forms of government infringements on liberty. If you're wondering what those infringements are and what liberties are at stake, well, my friend, that is why programs such as this one exist. Thank you for being a listener. Please visit my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. And thanks again for joining in this little exercise in wrong think. This is The Brian Hyde Show.